0: And I'm going to preach that sermon in a little different way. Take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 12. I begin with a quote that I've used in a sermon not too distant in the past. And so some of you will recognize it. It comes out of the 1980s from a songwriter named Steve Camp who said these words, Some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells. But I want to build a mission, a yard from the gates of hell. Those could have been the words of a guy that Aaron mentioned to us. I think it was Aaron. Well, maybe it wasn't Aaron. Uh, actually, he talked about Martin Luther. I'll come to him. But uh, those words from Steve Kemp could have easily been written by another guy. A German preacher named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lived during the time of Adolf Hitler and his rise to power and then his time in power. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, grown up in a family that was part of the intelligentsia of Germany before the war. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer grew to teach us many things about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he learned many of those things through some of the hardship of his life as one who stood against Hitler and all things that came with the regime of the Third Reich. Bonhoeffer said these words, So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, that is a life that is lived retracted from society behind safe walls, So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. Let me give you the whole quote because we just listed one piece of it there. Let me put it in context for you with the rest of what Bonhoeffer said in those words. It is not to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. For this cause he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So too the Christian belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. Bonhoeffer knew something about what it means to live and to operate in his faith in harm's way. Bonhoeffer stood against Hitler. He was one of those guys who was part of that group of people who decided that it was better to take the chance to have Hitler assassinated than it was to live under his rule. Bonhoeffer ultimately was arrested, thrown in prison, moved from prison to prison until finally, just weeks before the Allies liberated Germany from Hitler's oppression, they took Bonhoeffer out and hanged him for his faith. Those words carry significance for us. Those words that drive us out of the safety of our nice little western Christianity and the safety net that we build around ourselves. Some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells. Bonhoeffer would say, that won't work. Bonhoeffer might very well have been influenced by the guy that Aaron mentioned to us last week. That is Martin Luther who also knew something about living in the way of danger as a Christian. Martin Luther was the one that we know, that German monk, a professor, a doctor of the church, who saw the abuses of the Catholic church and all of the political associations and the power that came with that, and he stood in the face of that power machine And argued for grace that we've been singing about and the need for us to understand that we cannot earn our salvation. That we cannot, as a church, manipulate people to our ends. Martin Luther said this on this topic. The kingdom is to be in the midst of our enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be part of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among the roses and the lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you were doing, who would have been spared? As Christians in 21st century American Christianity, and the cultural norm that it seems to be. We seem to have opted for a nice, neat, little Christianity that is able to be lived behind high walls and inside churches that refuse to be part of their communities. These guys would say to us that the Christian life is intended, the life that is noteworthy, the life that is lived by faith, is designed to be lived in harm's way. We find ourselves taking another step now with Abram in Genesis chapter 12. We've been here for a while now. But in Genesis chapter 12, we find Abram as God moves on him to go out of Mesopotamia, out of Haran and Ur and all of that area that was rather developed for ancient civilizations. And God moves him to a place he does not know yet until we get to today's passage, which is in actually verses 5 and 6 and 7. I'm going to read a little bit more than that in just a moment. But we'll zero in on this part of it, because what we're going to find with Abram in these early verses of chapter 12 is that God is doing a work in his life that is not ever intended to be just in his life. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Heavy words from God, great promises from God, but yet it's still required that Abram take a step out of the security of his moment into a very dangerous place, as it turns out. Verse 4, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah's wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. And the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is interesting text that we come to today. And it's one of those things that I think if we're not careful, we just read right over the top of it and we miss some of the key teachings that we have that's part of what it means to live a noteworthy life for the Lord, a life lived by faith. The situation unfolds for us the latter part of verse 5 and into verse 6. I want us to slow down as we read that a little bit. Our tendency sometimes is when we come to read Scripture, and especially the narrative portions like this where it's just telling the story, sometimes we get in such a hurry to get through the story that we stop, we don't stop and pay attention to some of the details that are there. So here's one of those details. This is kind of one of those little tools for personal Bible study that I like to throw out or at least highlight for you when we come to this. So here it is. When you find in a very small space a word or a piece of a word used in different ways, used multiple times in a very small space, that's probably important. And in this case, that word is the word Canaan. And also once it's actually listed as Canaanites. Twice in these two verses, verse 5 and 6, we find Canaan mentioned. The latter part of verse 5 and they set out to the land of Canaan. And then it says and when they came to the land of Canaan and it gets a little bit further and then it says the Canaanites were in the land. Why would the writer of Hebrew uh, of the why would the writer of Genesis emphasize that in such a way that he says it over and over there? Good reason, I think, because part of what we find here is we find Abram coming to that place that is significant. He doesn't know yet He will by the time we get out of verse 7. But he doesn't know yet that this is the place that God has called him to, that God is going to promise to him, actually to his descendants. But the writer of Genesis does know that. And so as we come to this, the writer of Genesis makes sure that there's enough information there so that the reader would perk his ears as he comes to this and say, okay, we're home finally. That's an interesting I think. Verse 7, God says, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Don't miss what lurks just beneath the surface of that statement. The Canaanites were in the land. They go to Canaan, an identifiable place, a specific spot on the globe. Here's the significance of it, I think. It's the part that we normally just kind of read over and we don't always pause long enough to let it sink in on us. What the writer is telling us is what Abram encountered when he got there and that is there were already people there. Why do you think God didn't send Abram to some place that was void of people? Any of you ever been to West Texas? I'm talking about that portion of Texas. If you go to San Antonio and you stay on I-10 and you go, you just keep going sort of west, a little bit north and west on I-10, you go far enough out there, you get to the land of nothingness. Why didn't God send Abram to a place like that? Why didn't he send him instead of to Canaan, that little land bridge, and we're going to come to that in just a little bit, talk a little bit more about the place that God took him to. But now I want us to stop long enough. Why didn't God take Abram someplace where he could just start from scratch? He he could have gone to that place immediately between where he came from and Canaan where he ended up, between Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, In modern-day Israel, he he could have just had him go straight across because that's no man's land. That's desert. There's nobody really that lives out there. Why didn't God just stick stick him out there in the middle of that and say, okay, I'm going to start from scratch. I don't want you to have to be influenced by anybody. It's a lot safer out here because there's nobody around. I'll do miracles if that's what I have to do in order to feed you. Let's just go where it's safe. By the way... That's the cry of the 21st century American church, by and large. Let's just go where it's safe. What you have to know is, God will have none of that from us. God didn't choose to take him into the middle of Saudi Arabia or Iran Or those places that we look at as we see satellite shots today and wonder how could anything live out there. God could have put him out there if he just wanted him to be safe. He could have done it any number of ways. He could have sent him to the moon if he wanted. But see, that's not God's design. It never has been God's design. As a matter of fact, here's a good point for us to get. At the earliest point of salvation history. Salvation history is that unfolding of history in God's purposes. Let me just start again. uh, Abram here is, you might say, patient zero in God's move to redeem mankind. Sin does its worst for us from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11. You read through that and you have the account of the flood. You have the account of the Tower of Babel. You have all of this stuff in there where man does his worst and sin works us over. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, God says, that'll be enough of that. I'm moving to redeem my people. And Abram is the beginning of that. And that beginning with Abram, will stretch through his family members and it'll become known as the children of Israel. And those children of Israel will wander in the wilderness before it's all said and done and they'll establish a nation. And out of that nation, God will bring his son. We're almost on the Christmas season. We celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ into the flesh. That's the high point of all of history until God finishes salvation history when he comes back and takes us all home. Salvation history, God's unfolding of His work and begins with this guy. It's not that it begins in God's mind here. It's just that God begins to play it out through this guy named Abram. At the earliest point of salvation history, God reveals an indispensable element of His plan. And that is that His people must function in an hostile environment. I, I need to let that settle in. Because there is that movement of our times. It's not just of our times. We can go back through church history and we can find this group, this mentality, this philosophy, if you will, that argued for we'll do better as Christians, we'll be more pleasing in God's sight if we'll just step back out of the flow of society and we'll do our church thing over here. We don't always call it our church thing. We may call it our family thing. We may call it our individual thing. We may call it our thing. But the philosophy behind it is to say we're going to step back, we're going to pull back. And God says, I have other plans. God's plan has always been that his people operate in harm's way. Always that's been his plan. From the very beginning. Now you may be looking at this going, I don't see that. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Let's talk about where this Canaan is and all of the stuff that goes with that. Notice in here, by the time we get through verse 7, Abram is into the land of the Canaanites. It's this little section of land, very small. Even on a full world globe, it's just almost hard to find it on there. You have to look for it. And if we didn't know from all of our Sunday school and Bible school and all of those kind of lessons where to look, we might not ever think about the land called Palestine or Canaan or as some of us call it, the Holy Land. But it's a historically significant piece of real estate. Back in Abram's day and all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it was that crossroads of society from Mesopotamian cultures and the power struggles from various kingdoms over there, the Babylonians, uh, those who would come later, uh, and then the Egyptians on the other side, there was this track of land that they would migrate from and people and traders would go and use this as it worked its way up from modern-day Iraq down through Syria. Syria down across what is modern day Israel and the Egyptian people would come up from there around the Mediterranean and they would meet in this natural crossroads called Canaan. That did a number of things. For one thing, it kept that a hot spot on the global geopolitical map for many centuries. It also caused all of these traders and all of these foreign armies to come in and as they came in, some people would stick around. And they would bring with them all of their religious activities. In other words, Canaan grew to be one of those places that was marked by paganism. And dotted throughout the countryside. Teresa and I visited there not too long ago, several years ago now. As you work your way through the countryside, you can see these natural um, geographical places that lend themselves to being noticed. From down in the plains where people would travel as a rule. High places, the Old Testament calls them. And at those high places, these pagans would go in and they would set up their places of worship. That's what we find here. As Abram comes into this, he goes into this high place that is called Shechem. And he finds this tree that is called Mori. It's a place where they would do their religious sacrificing. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but I want to stop for a minute just to say the writer of the book of Genesis understanding all of that background makes us pay attention when he says, And Abram came from where he had been to the place God led him, and when he got there, it was a hostile environment. There were already people there. And these people who were there already had their mind made up about how to live their lives and how to come in and establish their religion. You know, for a long time, and let's make sure that we're wearing this the way I think we should. For 20 years, I lived in the Rio Grande Valley, the deep part of South Texas. And I said in the earlier service, I'll say it again here, we think that we're in South Texas, and in a sense we are, okay? Okay. But we just know, I have to know, there's a lot more souther than what we are in as it relates to South Texas. <laughs> so six hours driving from here is the place that I used to live, south of here. It's down in the Rio Grande Valley, right up close to the Rio Grande River. You think of where Brownsville is, a little bit further inland as McAllen, but about the same, uh, whatever that is. Yeah, sea level or level. A line, this way, okay? Not this way, that way. Latitude, thank you. I guess. I don't know if that's true. So, so way down, okay? Now, the reason I make that um, statement for you is because one of the things that I learned when I got down there, having grown up in West Texas and having gone to school in the panhandle of Texas... I came to realize something when I moved into deep South Texas, and that was, you ain't home anymore, son. You see, when I lived down there, the Hispanic population was roughly, I'm going to say 96 out of 100 people were of Hispanic origin. Now, many of them came from Mexico, true Mexicans, Mexican citizens coming up. Most of them had been born there. That was home for them. But it was very much a Mexican cultural influence. My son came home from kindergarten, my oldest son, and he walked into the house and he said, mom, there's Mexicans in my class. (laughs) Yes, son, you're probably the only white boy in that class, right? Now, here's what I want you to hear from that. I loved it down there. Great people. The culture has much to commend itself to us. But when I moved down there, I suffered from that basic misconception that I, as an Anglo person, had something that those people needed to hear. Now, I expected it was going to get quiet when I said that. It's not just true on that racial divide. It's true for us in national ways. It's true for us in various ways. In the circles of our lives, we go into a situation as the out, the outer. um, I'm not even sure what the right way to say this is. Let me retread it for you. We step in and we think that because we believe what we believe, that they should believe what we believe too. Whoever they is, the fact that there's an us and a they, or a we and a they, is a problem anyway. But when we come in with a heavy hand that says, this is what I believe and this is my culture and I'm going to transform your culture, people don't like that. Right? I don't know. I'm not sure you agree with me. Let me flip it for you. Because I'm getting some of those looks like, you need to be quiet. Let me turn it around for you. Let's say, I'll take something way, hopefully way out there. Let's say that the, the Chinese government decides that they're going to send a million Chinese citizens into Southeast Texas. And those Chinese citizens come into Southeast Texas and immediately begin to demand that we do life the way they do. How would you like that? I think I've been in Southeast Texas long enough to believe that there's going to be some shooting going on if that happens. Right? None of us, I know that I'm treading on politically incorrect ground here to bring these things to the surface. But I want you to get the picture of what Abram is being called to do here. We have this mentality that believes, okay, this is us, and we know how to do life. Let me tell you, even beyond that, when it comes to the gospel, we have good authority that this is the way to do life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he demands some things of his followers, and so... Abram is called into this situation. The writer of Genesis is very careful to underscore the reality that there were people there already. And clearly, they already had their own way of doing religion. God puts Abram right into the middle of harm's way And he says to him, you're home. That might threaten us a little bit. I suspect if we play through the implications of that, it has to threaten us just a little bit to realize that God is not going to be content with us arguing for or even planning for safe, secure living when he calls us into harm's way. From the earliest days of the Christian enterprise, God says, this is the way to do it. But also, from the earliest days of the Christian enterprise, we as a church join a history of a church that has to fight against inertia. Because the whole church thing easily gravitates away from we're placed in a hostile environment for a reason. I'll get to that in just a little bit. God doesn't just say, I'm just going to watch you sweat, so go get out there where it's dangerous. He has a reason for us to be here. We're called to influence that. Right? Okay. Well, at least Barbara and I are going to go there together. But the church fights inertia at that point because it's hard to do that. It's dangerous to do that. I don't know. I don't want to put my children out there where they're going to get hurt or they're going to get burned or they're going to get made dirty. Speaking of that, I don't want to put myself out there to do that. But somehow God seems to say to us time and time again through scripture, you don't get to make that choice and still be obedient to me. Because the decision has been made from his side. So how do we wear this as a church? We put it off of the church. How do we wear it as individuals? I was was having a discussion with somebody the other day. You know one of the greatest, most humbling things for a pastor? Ask somebody if they remember one of your sermons. Because they don't. Ever. Ever. That's okay. I'm good with that. Maybe. No, I'm not. You remember the first sermon that I preached here? Does anybody remember that? You don't get anything free if you remember it. I got one in the back who does. Okay. But I'm not going to put him on the spot. The very first sermon that I ever preached here was out of Matthew's gospels. When I came in view of a call and it's that passage where Jesus said that, or the Matthew tells us and Jesus saw the crowds And he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I know that was the first sermon that I preached here because that's one of my life verses. It hangs cross-stitched on the wall of my office right next to the door. And every time I walk out the door, I glance at that because I know that that's what life is about for us as Christian people. To see people in their need. So let me just ask you, let's just wear this as a church. How do we see the people of this community? Now, this community is kind of a big statement for me because it's Lumberton and Silsby and Kuntz and a pretty big circle around those communities together. The reach of this church is rather extensive. So how do we see our community? You know that a lot of Christian people see the community around them as a threat? It's it's out there. And we, we can't take the chance of being overcome by them. And they're a threat to us. And so we build walls, literally or otherwise. And we retract ourselves behind them and we come up with all of these schemes and all of these ways to make sure that the dirty people out there in the dangerous world doesn't encroach on our territory. We see it as a threat. There are other people. By the way, lots of churches, a lot of people, a lot of Christian people operate that way in their lives. Others see it not so much as a threat but as an obstacle. They're getting in our way of how we think and how we think life ought to be. And so it's not that we're afraid of them because we know those passages and we quote those passages, greater is he that's in you than He's in the world. And, and we are more than conquerors through him. We even sing about those, I think, don't we? And those are truths. And so we hold on to those things. And yet the way we see people out there is that we're the conquerors. You're the ones to be conquered. And so right now you're an obstacle from getting us where we need to go. And so we'll squash you if that's what we have to do. Maybe we should hear from Christ. Whose scripture tells us. That he looked out. And he saw those people. And he saw them. In the way they were living their lives. And he had compassion on them. One of the worst Chapter breaks in all of the New Testament occurs in the middle of this whole statement because it says Jesus saw them, they are harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them and he turns to his disciples. That's where the chapter break happens. He turns to his disciples and he said, you guys, get out there and help those people. He sends them out on a mission. God never sees but that he reaches in compassion. Maybe we should follow that lead and have a little bit of spiritual eye-testing going on to see how we see the fields that he has placed us into. In case we don't think that's really all that critical, I want to take you back to the place that I spent 20 years One of the values of being in a church in a place like that for so long is that you get the advantage of that historical perspective. And I watched in that area as some of those once Anglo churches died. I mean, First Baptist churches in some pretty decent-sized towns. One of my friends was pastor at one of those churches. And he was the last pastor that they had. Not only did they kill him, they killed their church right after he died. And it was a group of people. They were Anglo people. And at one time, they had been young Anglo people, but they got old as a church and the people got old and the people would say to their pastor, we don't want any of those brown people in our church. You know what's the problem with that? Well, there's a lot of problems with that. But let's just let the numbers work for us here. If 96 out of 100 people are brown, how many people do you think are going to want to go to that church? And those four are going to die before it's over with. Actually, those four are dead the minute they say we don't want brown people here. They're already dead. I know, maybe in our church, maybe some of you are going, I can't believe he's talking about race. I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about the field that God has placed us in as a church. Those churches died. I could take you today to the place where those churches, once vibrant churches stood, and now the light's out. So what about us? Here's the truth. When everything in you says, retreat from the public square. It's too dangerous and it's too dirty out there. When everything in you screams that, recognize that God is saying to you, that's your new home. I brought you here. On purpose, I brought you to this dirty place. It's a simple statement in Scripture. The Canaanites were in the land. God immediately turns to Abram and he says, by the way, this will be your home. God does the same thing all through Scripture. But fortunately, God knows that that is hard for us. And so he gives us what we need. He instills courage in us. And I know that I'm about out of time. Let me see if I can hit This is actually my favorite part of the whole message. Get the sequence right. Verse 1, God says to Abram, uh, Let's go. And so, verses, last part of verse 1, 2, and 3, we get God's promises to him. Verse 4, Abram says, okay, let's go. So he leaves. And so he's making his way, and he's following probably that fertile crescent, that land trek that uh, so many traders and others and armies would travel. And so he finds his way down, and he gets down into this place called Shechem. I mean, excuse me, to, called Canaan. And while he's in Canaan, Canaan, he finds this high place, this noteworthy landscape feature, and he goes up there to it. And sure enough, it's a high place for paganism. Wait a minute, and he stops there. Why would he stop at a pagan altar? And the answer to that is, he's pagan. And I, OK, now, I just lost some of you. Well, that's the Father of the Faith. What are you about? Abram grew up in a pagan land. He would have grown up with the religious trappings of Mesopotamia all over him. We don't know at what point he comes to the point where his only trust is in God, but we believe I believe that at some point in there he gets so overwhelmed with who God is that he sees what he needs to see. Actually, I think that happens in verse seven. But I'll get to that in just a second. Here's the deal, he goes to Shechem, which means a ridge or a high place, and he sees that and he goes to that, he goes to this place, the oak, or your translation may say the terebinth or the tree of Moreh, which literally means the teacher's tree. What this is, is a place that those pagans, was a. they believed that the gods, now we're with a small g, not a capital G, that that was a place that you could go and get an oracle, a teaching, a word from your god. And it's at that place, the natural place, that Abram goes. After all, he needs to hear from God. In fact, God doesn't disappoint him at all. Notice the difference, though, between verse 1 and verse 7. Verse 1 says, and God, what? Said. What does verse 7 say? And God appeared. Why do you think the difference there? Here's what I think. I think it becomes an instrumental truth for us in the way we operate in this fallen society. Abram went to the natural place to expect to hear from a deity, a pagan shrine. But God was not willing to take the chance that Abram might believe that some local god spoke to him. And so he steps into Abram's reality full bore. God appeared to him. Never again would that tree be signified as a pagan worship site for Abram. That's the place that his faith got real. So what did he do? Verse 7, what did he do? Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. God ever showed up in your life? Just showed up? One of the things as we were working through that worship sermon series a while back, I said, I believe that worship, best definition, it would never pass in a seminary class, but it's where I'm out of seminary. It is the natural response to an encounter with God. You see it all through scripture. When somebody encounters a living God, they fall on their face and they worship him. So Abram does that here. What more effective way to be injected into the local religious culture than to build an altar at a pagan site? Now, most Christians in our day are, would just be totally offended if the pastor said, I went to a Buddhist shrine this week. We don't believe that's appropriate. But somehow, God sees to it that Abram, there in the teeth of the dragon, builds an altar that highlights the reality of Yahweh in his life. Maybe... This truth helps us. When God shows up, worship is natural and we won't care who knows it or who sees it. Here's the truth for us. I'm I'm trying to close it off here. This world that we're living in, that we're called into, doesn't need churchianity. You know what I mean, churchianity? Churchianity. Churchianity is that cultural excuse for being who God told us to be. And so we build our nice little churchianity kind of constructs. And we love our little churchianity constructs. And we'll shoot you if you mess with them. But the world outside looks at us and goes, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't even want that. And we've replaced worshiping God out in the field. We've replaced that with, come to church. But the best evangelism that ever occurs is when God's people worship Him on a daily basis, step out into the lost world, and draw people, not to themselves, but to Christ. By the way, that little statement is sort of said it a different way in our vision statement on your bulletin. Dispersing into the communities of Southeast Texas, spreading churchianity. Lord, help us. We don't need more of that. We need less of that and more worship. And you know the deal is when God shows up, you don't have to work up worship. It happens. So God gets Abram into his plan now and his plan is to infiltrate a pagan culture with the reality of who Jesus Christ will be and who God is at that time. So much time, energy, and effort is spent building churchianity constructs and then fighting to the death to protect our favorite ones. And churches all across this world are shattered by that level of thinking. I want you to notice, Abram did not stage a protest because somebody didn't recognize his God. Abram didn't get on Facebook and post about all the evils of Canaanite religion. <laughs> he didn't whine about being in the minority in this new place. He just built an altar and said, I'm going to worship God right in your face in harm's way. And in about five minutes, y'all are all going to walk out of here into harm's way. The question becomes, what are you going to take with you? It's a little early for New Year's resolutions. But um, let me go ahead and give you one to think about. What if every one of us, people who attend our church, I'm not even talking about just members, I'm talking about just people part of the life of our church. What if every one of us resolved to share Jesus Christ in a meaningful way with one person a week next year? Now Look around. Now, this crowd's bigger than the one in the first service, and that one was, you know, I, you let me, you want to set record attendance, I'll, I'll figure out how many we got. So I'm thinking 6,000 people here this morning, right? If every one of us in here today shared Christ in a meaningful way with one person a week next year, how many people might come to know Jesus Christ who wouldn't otherwise? I don't know. Might be worth taking up the challenge to see. Let's pray. Father, we really prefer neat, safe, culturally Christian kind of stuff. But we have been reminded in Scripture this morning that from the beginning of this whole faith enterprise... You push us to set up camp in harm's way. Help us to embrace the call. Help us to confess that other stuff that we've let choke that call out. And then give us the courage we need to be what you call us to be. Please don't let us settle for whatever reason we can dream up don't let us settle for safe, simple Christianity that doesn't engage our culture we ask that you would move among us help us to see people the way you do give us a holy discontent with business as usual in the church where we find ourselves fighting for and Defending our own little kingdoms. We pray that you would do whatever you have to do to break us. Even if you have to kill us, to break that stranglehold on the church these days. For the good of the gospel and the call of the kingdom, do with us what you need to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.